Welcome to the Compliance Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Turtletow from the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics and Healthcare Compliance Association. Joining us today from Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill area is Brett Hood. Brett is co-founding partner of 21st Century Learning and Consulting. And today we're going to be talking about why people, including leaders, fail. Brett, first, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So, I love this topic um, because I think it's ultimately what we all wrestle with is why people who seemingly are good and everything else fail. Um, Let me start with something on the leadership side. There's, of course, that old saying that power corrupts and absolutely power corrupts absolutely. What's your sense? Is that true? Does assuming a role in leadership open no matter how inadvertently the door to ethical failings? Yeah, it's really kind of interesting the way it works is that research shows that as you move up that organizational ladder, your ability to empathize, your your ability to perceive other situations starts to deteriorate. And many times you don't even notice it's happening. So by the time you reach some of the upper echelons of that organizational chart, your empathy abilities are almost gone. And what happens inadvertently is we become these self-centered individuals where we tend to take all the credit for everything that goes right and spread the blame for everything that goes wrong, which is the antithesis of what leadership should be. Yeah, you made a good point there because leadership does mean owning both the good and the bad of the organization, and it is always tempting to blame others. Now, in some of your writings, you said an interesting concept, uh, illusory superiority. What does that mean in practice? Illusory superiority means that as you look at yourself, you believe yourself to be better than everyone else. And so if I, in, in some of the trainings I do, I ask people, says, are you smarter than most people in your organization? Inevitably, I get majority say yes. But the most interesting one I do on illusory superiority is when I'm in a class, let's say we have 100 people in the room, and I do this exercise, I've got the room set up. In one corner, I've got it labeled A, second corner B, third corner C, fourth corner D. And I wanna do a visual uh, exercise to show people how this works. And so I ask people to rate themselves on their leadership ability. And so I have the top 10% walk over to the A corner, the top 25% walk over to the B corner, top 50% walk over to the C corner, and then finally the bottom 50% in the D corner. In a room of 100, statistically, you should have 50 people in the D corner, the bottom 50%. But every time I've done this exercise, the most I have ever had in the D corner, bottom 50%, is three to five individuals. That is illusory superiority. When we compare ourselves to others, we are much more favorable in our opinions of ourselves as opposed to our opinions of others. Yeah, it's funny as you're saying that I do something similar is uh, I'll have people say, raise your hand if you're in a long-term relationship and keep it up in the air. And then I say, keep your hand up if you're the better driver. And, you know, it's the same thing. It's something like 85% of the people think they're better than average drivers. it's just one of those things about us is this sort of inflated sense of, of self that can get into trouble. Now, speaking of which, what are some of the warning signs we should be looking out for in ourselves? It's really hard to, to self-assess 
because I mean, you know, if you look at yourself, there's always a, a reason for you to justify or rationalize your actions. In fact, I read someone who quoted the other day, and I can't remember who it was. He calls the human brain a human rationalization machine in that we are able to justify everything we do. So what I recommend is find someone, a friend, a colleague, a spouse, significant other, whatever you have, who is willing to give you an honest opinion, no matter what. And so what happens when that occurs is you're gonna probably feel mad, a little bit of anger. What I counsel people is to try to brush off that anger because the criticism they're giving you is in your best interest. They want to see you succeed. But because of the way our brains work, we don't always see when we're failing. And having that trusted colleague, the one that you will listen to, tell you when you go wrong is invaluable to leadership and ethicality. And having a candid voice counts. The hard part is, as you know, we all hate being wrong. I don't know if you've ever read Catherine Schultz's book on the topic of being wrong, but you know, we all see it. It's, it forces us to question who we are in our own judgments. And I imagine a large part of the problem is if you're a leader, everything does revolve around your judgments. And the last thing you can afford psychically to hear is that you're wrong. But if we look at ourselves, Adam, all of us have made mistakes. Mm -hmm. We've all made errors. And if you go back and look at the time where you have made errors, maybe even made a significant mistake, chances are someone around you could have recognized that you were about to make this mistake. If you don't create a culture, what they call psychological safety, and that is the perception that I can offer a contradictory opinion to you or criticism of you without fear of retribution and ridicule, then they can potentially help you avoid the mistakes. And if it comes down to money, if it comes down to a bad decision in an organization, wouldn't a leader want someone to speak up and prevent them from making a terrible mistake? I sure would. Yeah, no, I, I think we all would. The hard part, obviously, is, you know, we also all have that voice inside of ourselves that says, don't question me to other people. So we talked about one technique for preventing falling into this trap, which is having that trusted person who can tell you, no, this is wrong, or maybe you should think about things differently. Are there other techniques people can use to avoid falling into these traps? A couple of other things that I like to do is um, when I make a decision, um, you know, I spent 25 years in the FBI before I retired and started doing this for a living. And what I saw was when people made a decision, made the incorrect decision, they kept doubling down and they kept saying like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to make it up in the next quarter. I'm going to recover from this decision. Understand that once you fall into that trap, you fall victim to the sunk cost bias in that you keep chasing after that, trying to fix it, instead of just saying, you know what, I messed up, let's stop it right now. So one of the other things that I've done to try to counteract that is we make decisions that are impulsive, we make decisions that are emotional, and our conscious brain doesn't always recognize that. So if I come across an important decision, something that I know is gonna have an impact on multiple layers of the business, on many people in the business, one of the things I ask myself is, what would have happened if I made the exact opposite decision? 
And what that kind of does is it forces me to take another perspective. It, it causes me to like say, all right, I want to do this. What are the negative things associated with this? What would happen if I did the opposite? Would there still be the same negative associations? Would there be further um, damage down the road? Or could this be a better decision? It's just like, you know, research shows that board of directors, the more diversity they have, different cultures, different genders, different experiences, people from different geographic areas, when they put their minds together, they make better decisions. Sometimes leaders don't have that at their hand or they're available for them to help them with a the decision. So by considering my gut instinct is telling me to make this decision, what happens if I make the exact opposite? What we're trying to do is create these perspectives that you would ordinarily get if you had a bunch of people in the room that you trusted and offered their truthful ideas. That's a great idea. I mean, you know, to be your own devil's advocate, if you will, um, does bring great insights because you know it does force you to pick apart your own decision making and uh as you were talking about people you know making the fudge to the numbers to make one quarter and saying make it up the next it is one of those traps that we see over and over again in scandals now you're an advocate also for understanding what you call followership um can you share what that means with people sure i mean if you think about it and I asked this question in my leadership classes, it is, um, can you choose to be the leader? And inevitably people just immediately react and they say, absolutely, I can raise my hand and be the leader. And, and I, I like using this, this analogy. If you've ever seen the, the movie Old School with Will Ferrell, at one point he drinks a little bit too much. He goes up on a stage and he says, all right, everybody, let's go streaking. And the next scene in the movie you see, and I apologize for the visual reference because it's not pretty, Will Ferrell running naked down the street. To me, that's an analogy of you raising your hand and said, yes, I'll be the leader. What we don't think about is the follower has a choice, a choice of whether or not to follow you. In a business setting, if you're a supervisor, then they have to follow you for some, at some point and for some things. But in reality, if you think about it, how many times have you had a supervisor who you followed only because you had to, but if things fell apart at work and a crisis or emergency happened, would you really follow that person? So when we think about followership, we fail to consider that our followers have needs and have desires. Just because you're the supervisor doesn't necessarily mean that you're the leader. A leader who doesn't connect to their followers on a personal and a business level is not likely to be a leader in times of crisis or in times of emergency. There is a big difference between people who you do things for because you want to versus people you do things for because they tell you to do. And certainly for good leaders, one that people want to serve. Well, Brett, this has been a great conversation. I wanna thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, let me also thank all of you for taking the time to listen. I'm Adam Turtletaup from SCCE and HCCA. I hope we're able to expand your compliance perspective.